Amen. Would you open your Bibles to John 4 this morning? We are back there after our break last week in our missions conference. We're back to this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman that he encountered at this well. It's the third message about that encounter. And I can't rehash all from those first two messages, but I do want to give you, by way of brief reminder, some of what we've looked at in those first two messages. Uh, We looked some at Jesus' sovereignty about this business of him having to go through Samaria. Um, And we, I hope, found great hope there that he had to go through Samaria, that he had to encounter this woman. Great hope that if you belong to Jesus, know that he will come after you. He will come for you. He will find you. We also talked some about the fact that he's the Savior of all. He's the Savior of all peoples. And yes, that is of Jew and Gentile. But more importantly, he's the Savior of all people, regardless of how we might be trying to save ourselves or make life work for us. Some of us are are trying to save ourselves. Some of us are trying to make life work for us by by keeping all the rules. We're we're looking to religion. We're, We're looking to save ourselves through our own good behavior. But others of us are looking to find meaning and satisfaction in life by breaking all the rules. Um, Irreligion, if you will, of of seeking satisfaction, of seeking to fulfill every pleasure. And Jesus, fortunately, wonderfully, is the Savior of of both. He's the Savior of all. No matter how we might be seeking to to make life work, um, to find satisfaction. We talked some of the Samaritan woman's ignorance, right? How she, she was ignorant of her own need. She could not see it. She was ignorant of the provision that this man who stood in front of her offered to her. Hopefully your memory will be jogged a little bit more even as we read this passage. I'm, I'm going to go back and we're going to read a, a little bit longer portion of the passage. We're going to go back and start in verse 7. Though our focus this morning is mainly going to be on verses 16 through 26. So if you're able to stand for, again, it's a little bit longer passage. Keep that in mind. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, 
for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word this morning. Let's pray. Father, this passage, these verses are so overflowing with You with your goodness, with your truth. They are so overflowing with Jesus and what he offers to us in the gospel. There's no way we could do this justice in one or in ten messages. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you come in these moments that we share this morning. You take these verses and you cause them to come alive, come alive in each of us in the way that you intend. That each one here this morning might receive a custom-tailored, personalized, and powerful message from you that you would wield this sword, this double-edged sword of truth in each of our hearts in exactly the way that you know that we need it, in exactly the way that you intend, that at the end of this we might see Jesus more clearly, we might understand the gospel more fully, we might know both our sin and the thirst that drives that sin. We might be brought to places of repentance. We might receive wholeness and restoration that this living water of Jesus offers to us. It's a tall order. It's a big ask. But you can do it. We pray it in Jesus' name and expect and await the answer. Amen. Please be seated. Y'all, this passage... Even as I prayed, there's no way we can do it justice, but we are going to look this morning at four questions that these verses raise. Number one, why is Jesus so mean? Why is he so mean to this woman? Number two, where should we worship? Of course, at Trinity Church in Orangeburg. How should we worship? hopefully much like we're doing this morning, for what will the long-awaited and promised Messiah, what will He do when He gets here? 
Number one, why is Jesus so mean? The first verses that I read this morning detail the beginning of this encounter. Talking about water, talking about needing a drink of water, talking about being thirsty, and talking about Jesus' offer of living water. You won't be thirsty anymore. And so the Samaritan woman, she finally gives in. Okay, fine. Can I have some of this water, please? But Jesus' answer in verse 16 is a bit odd. He seems to be changing the subject on her. Go call your husband. What does he have to do with this? All this talk of thirst and water, go get your husband. Whatever Jesus' reason for asking that question, it doesn't seem like he's going to get very far because she answers in verse 17, I don't have one. Next topic, please. But wait. There's a shocking development. Dun-dun-dun. Stunning revelation. Oh, you were right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five. And the man you're now living with, well, you ain't married to him. Snap. He was baiting her. He laid a little trap for her and she fell right in. Because he knew. He knew her. Now why would he embarrass her like that? I mean, it's hard to blame her for her half-truth of an answer here. No husband. Next. All right, rather not go there. It's not something she was proud of, all these failed attempts. One commentator that I read this week called her a mess, a broken series of false beginnings and shattered hopes. Ouch. This was, after all, why she came to the well when she did, at at the sixth hour in the heat of the day, when no other women were coming to draw water. It's too hot. We're not going to do that at noon. We're going to wait. We're going to wait till the sun's almost down and it's not so blazing hot. But she came in the heat of the day so that she might not face the scorn of others, so that she might not feel so much shame, so that she might. It was her way of hiding coming when she did. But on this particular day, it didn't work out too well for her. Because here's Jesus showing up in her hiding place, exposing her, rubbing her nose in her shame and her failure. Is that what he's doing? Is that why he brings it up? Is he being mean? No, he's not being mean. I reminded you earlier, and we've we discussed previously of, of her ignorance, both of her need and of what Jesus had to offer. She, she didn't know. She, she couldn't see. And here's something you need to know about Jesus. If the Father has determined to make you part of His people, 
If the Father has determined to adopt you as a daughter or a son, if the Father has determined to give you to the Lord Jesus that He might redeem you and make you whole, then guess what? Jesus will come and find you. He will come for you and He will get you to the place where you understand your need for Him. So that then he can get you to the place where you understand just what he offers. So when he asks about this woman's husband. And reveals all that he knows about her. He's not doing it to be mean, but he is doing it to reveal her sinfulness. Married five times. makes her a serial adulterer. Living with the one she's not married to. Contrary to God's law. Contrary to His good design. There's there's a biblical, there's a technical word for that. Makes her a fornicator. To put it bluntly. To put it cold and hard. That's the reality of this. And it's important that we talk frankly at times about sin. That we call a spade a spade. That we say, this is not according to God's plan and His good design. So we need to talk about it. It's important. It's a problem if we never talk about sin. But it can be an even bigger problem if our talk about sin only leads us to a more rigid commitment to obey the rules. Jesus doesn't expose this woman like this because He wants her to obey the rules, tighten up. No, what He wants to do is much deeper than that. He's got a far greater agenda with this woman. You see, sin is very often a symptom. It's a symptom of something that's lurking deep, deep down. Sin is like the fruit on a tree. Right? You, you see it. It's, it's right there. You, you see the apple. You can kind of see the apple there. It's a little dark. You see that apple, and sometimes it's hard to remember that that apple is connected all the way down to the root that goes how many ever feet below the surface that it goes. And to deal with the fruit, to deal with the sin, while ignoring the fruit, to say, I'm just going to stop doing this thing that is wrong. I'm going to stop it, stop it, stop it. And never address the root can leave you in a worse place than when you began. It would be the band-aid approach. If, if If you notice some sore develop on your skin and you say, well, that's unsightly. I'm just gonna cover that up with a band-aid and ignore it. Pretend like it's not well, what if that thing on your skin 
is connected deep down to a tumor somewhere. And you slap a band-aid on it and go about your merry way. Jesus isn't being mean to this woman. He's going after the tumor. He's going after the root. He's not upset primarily about these six men. Is that wrong? Yes, certainly it's wrong. But it's what those six men represent. He's more concerned about the thirst that drove her into those many, many relationships. She's desperately seeking something, and she's not having much success finding it, apparently. What Jesus so desperately wants this woman to know is that the well she's been drinking from, well, it's not satisfying you. It will never satisfy you. It just can't. And so he's got to get her to the place. He has to shock her with this deep, deep knowledge that he has of her. And friends, guess what? Jesus knows you exactly the same way. Jesus could come and shock every single one of us with the deep, deep knowledge he has of us. He could expose things about every one of us that, oh, if they came to the light of day, if other people, oh, I would just die. Maybe you're like her. Maybe you've been looking to relationships to quench your thirst. It it could be anything, right? We've got countless wells from which to try to drink from. Uh, If it's not sex, then it's money. If it's not money, it's career. If it's not career, it's fame. If it's not fame, it could be family. Such a good thing like family. Never going to quench your thirst, right? These wells offer water that will never satisfy. In fact, most often, these wells offer water that only make the thirst worse. Right? Isn't money such a good example of that? Right? Who has ever found themselves with enough money? Right? Oh, if I, if I could just reach this level, I'd be, but then I get to this level and, well, now I need to be at... I'm, I bet this woman with each subsequent husband found herself not getting closer to satisfaction, but further away. Oh, maybe the second guy. Maybe he'll have what the first one lacked. Well, no, he didn't. But maybe this third one, maybe he'll have what they both... No, he didn't. It is important that we have a keen understanding of our sin and of our sinfulness Right? It is important that we see ourselves guilty in front of a holy and righteous God. But it is equally important that we also see where that sin comes from. The root that has caused that sin to well up as a symptom is a thirst deep down. A thirst that our Creator gave to us. The thirst is not the bad thing. The answer is not to stop being thirsty. The answer is to have that thirst satisfied as the Creator intended that it be satisfied ultimately in Him.
So no, Jesus isn't being mean. He's actually being very kind and compassionate, trying to get this woman and trying to get us to a place where we see our need and we see the provision that's being offered. Now, we've got to pick up the pace from here. Where should we worship? So, Samaritan woman has had her entire shameful life projected up on the screen. She says, whew, it's getting hot in here. Can we talk about something else? Verse 19 and 20, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> hmm. Our fathers worshipped here. You say we're supposed to worship there. Which is it? Is, is she creating a diversion? Perhaps, right? This could be a rabbit trail. Right? She just, let's talk about anything other than what we've been talking about, please. Uh, and that's common, right? Uh, when I'm in conversation with folks about the Bible, about biblical truth, about the gospel, sometimes it begins to get a little too personal. Sometimes it begins to hit a little too close to home and people start to squirm and, I don't like this. Uh, How many angels is it that can dance on the head of a pen again? Right? And there'll be these weird, obscure rabbit trails that all of a sudden become very important. I, I, I need to know this. That could be what's going on here. But it might be linked in her mind. Sir, I, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. You've got this crazy supernatural knowledge about me. So if you're right about that, uh-oh, what else might you Jews have been right about? Maybe we really have been worshiping in the wrong place all these years, and I certainly can't afford another strike against me. So if I've already screwed up my love life, I'd better sure be worshiping in the right place. And, and if that's it, then it's just another classic example of, I need to try to fix myself. I've, I've blown it over here. Let's try to make up for it with some obedience over here. I'm in a pickle. (laughs) What can I do to get myself back into the okay column? Now, who knows? Whether it's intended as a diversion or not, Jesus doesn't treat it as one. He doesn't skip a beat. He answers her question and goes on to show her how irrelevant her question now is. Right? So the answer basically that we glean from the the text is that, yes, y'all are wrong. Jerusalem is the right place to worship. Y'all have been worshiping in ignorance. Okay. So, Mount Gerizim, it wasn't just a random choice. They didn't just say, hmm, where should we worship? Uh, how about here? No, it was a partially informed choice. If you look back at the first five books of the Bible, which is all that they looked at, the Samaritan people, Mount Gerizim was a pretty important place. A lot of significant things happened on or around Mount and so they tied some significance there and they said, all right, here's where we should worship. But because they only used a part of God's word and they excluded all the rest of the writings, which had some pretty explicit and very clear instruction about where God wanted the worship to take place <laughs> when Solomon built the temple, <laughs> it's supposed to be in Jerusalem. And, and so they missed some very obvious instruction from God's word about where he wanted them to worship. So here's This is kind of a little minor takeaway. This is not part of the main thrust, I think. But here's a little minor takeaway. 
you and I, we will worship and we will walk in ignorance without all of God's Word. Right? If we truncate it, if we limit ourselves in some way, either with our own intake of God's Word, if, if that's how, you know, we just, you know, we'll read it occasionally, a little bit here or there, right? Or we only read the parts that we like over and over and over, right? Without the, the full counsel of God's Word, we will walk and worship in ignorance. And that's why the Samaritans worshiped where they did, and they were wrong. So Jesus says, Jerusalem is the right place that soon won't matter anymore. Is basically what he tells the woman. You're wrong. Should have been in Jerusalem all this time, and now location isn't really all that important. What? Wait, wait a minute. This has been a really big deal for hundreds of years. This has caused so much strife between my people and your people. And you're telling me it's about to not matter where we worship? Now, Let me give you a little warning. I'm about to connect two dots, and I'm going to do it pretty quickly. I've tried to visually represent it so you can follow along. So pay attention. Why was this such a big deal? What's the big deal about where the temple is located? What's the big deal about the temple in the first place? What's the main thing that takes place in temple worship? It's the sacrifices. We need to know where we should make our sacrifices. That's your first dot. Second dot comes in both verse 21 and verse 23. This repeated occurrence of, in Jesus' explanation, he's saying the hour is coming. The hour is coming. Where geographic location isn't going to be a factor at all. Now, I've mentioned to you before, And we'll see it again and again and again. In John's gospel, the hour, his hour always refers to and points to his death, to his being lifted up on the cross. Okay? So now connect these two dots. It's about to not matter where you worship. It's about to not matter where you make your sacrifices because the hour is coming when one final and for all sacrifice will be made. There will be no more sacrifices to offer. And so that changes the location of worship. It's about to not be tied to a specific geographical location anymore because of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. And that also changes not just where, but how we worship. she only asks about where, but as a free gift with purchase, Jesus gives her the how we're to worship too. The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus for us in our place, suffering the punishment for all the ways that we tried to quench that thirst ourselves, that final sacrifice ushers in a new era of worship. Worship in spirit and truth. And y'all, here's another place where this could have been its whole other sermon or sermon series, right? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
I think that these two, this spirit and truth, ought to be considered together. Okay, let, let's, let's take these as, as one thing. Spirit and truth worship is one thing. It's not two different things, but it's one thing. And let me just offer some thoughts for you to consider, even in bullet point fashion. Right? What does worshiping in spirit and truth entail? Well, this instruction, this command, comes on the heels of the Samaritan woman's question. Her question is, is an external question about worship. Where should worship be located? But what Jesus is doing is showing her how worship is becoming not about the externals, but about the internal. Right? The biggest question is not, well, should it be here or should it be there? Jesus is pointing her to the fact that it should be here. Right, that, that the location of your worship is moving from this external place inside. It's moving to your heart. Right, so it's internal and not external. And, and this notion of God is a spirit, right? Well, you can't see a spirit. A spirit is unseen, right? And as such, it is supernatural. So think about supernatural. It's, it's above. It's beyond the natural, what we can see, what we can touch. Right? It's also not to be in ignorance as they've been worshiping. Right? They've been worshiping in ignorance. No, our worship needs to be according to truth. Right? They, they were worshiping in ignorance because they neglected the full counsel of God's Word. They, they, they neglected His full revelation and revealed will. And y'all, if it's worship in spirit and truth... It's hard not to think about Jesus' own self-designation of He Himself being the truth. I am the way, the truth, and, and the life. And, and when you combine that, of Him being the truth, and this idea of God being spirit and unseen, but then we know the truth from Scripture is that Jesus is God incarnate. Right? He is God who has taken on flesh that we might now see that which can't be seen. And so the whole thing is ultimately incredibly Jesus-centered. It, it is very much centered on this sacrifice of himself, this once and for all sacrifice that would be for all time an atoning for sin. And so Worshiping in spirit and truth is ultimately a very Christ-centered and gospel-centered thing. It's all about Jesus. Which brings us to this last point. The Samaritan woman is still, bless her heart, she's trying to wrap her mind around all of this, who Jesus is, what this living water is all about. And it leads to what I think is somewhat of this last-ditch effort on her part to save a little face, right? I'm not some ignorant hick. I, I know some stuff about religion. Right? I, I know that Messiah's coming. And it's almost like she's saying to him, Sir, you make some interesting points here. And I guess we'll just have to wait and see if you're right. Right? Because Messiah's coming and he'll set all this straight for us. He'll tell us all the, the truth. And John, who loves irony, and we will see so much more irony in this gospel, 
Like, I just wonder how Jesus can even keep a straight face, as this woman is saying. Oh, I, I know that Messiah is coming, and based on what he says, we'll know if you were right or not. I want you to note, though, what she was expecting Messiah to do. She's got some messianic expectations, but they are far too low. She says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. See, their their expectation, Samaritans, her expectation, was that Messiah would solve an information problem. Right? He would bring knowledge. That, that's what we really need. We, need. we need to know the right things so that we can do the right things. See, it, if we had just known that it was supposed to be over in Jerusalem, we, we would have happily gone if we had just known. If we had just known the right things, we could have done the right things. But friends, if she only knew, and she's getting there, she's getting there, She's just slow like a lot of us. She only knew what Messiah came to do. John mentions, again, she was at the well at the sixth hour. That's about noon. There's one other place in John's gospel where he mentions the sixth hour. You know where that is? It's when Jesus goes to the cross. When his hour finally comes the appointed hour for his sacrifice the appointed hour when he would go and he would bear this woman's and all of our shame and scorn at the sixth hour and in doing so he would become the only one who could ever quench this woman's thirst and our thirst. That's what every single one of us has been thirsting for. Dying of thirst for one to love us like that. To give himself for us like that. No spouse is ever going to do that for you. No earthly pleasure or experience is ever going to do that for you. Only the one who who died for us in our place. And until he comes and finds you, like he found her that day, and he said, I who speak to you am he. Until we realize that. Until we begin to worship a Messiah who did that for us. Right? That's when our thirst will be forever quenched. In the falling down on our knees and on our faces before the one who gave himself, for up, gave himself up for us like that. That's the first and only and fullest way that we'll ever find our thirst quenched. Let's pray. Oh, Father.
would you even in this moment allow Jesus to find men and women, boys and girls in this place? Would you even in this moment be exposing thirst? Bringing folks to a place of of being undone and caught, embarrassed, full of shame for what has gone on, not because you're mean, but because you want to expose the futility. You want to expose the lack of water in that well. Lord, come and do that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.